Please be opening your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 16, verses 17 through 19. We're doing part two of Jesus' response to Peter's great confession. It's been four weeks since our first installment, since Jesus, uh, part one of Jesus' response to Peter's great confession. It's been six weeks since our handling of Peter's great confession itself. A brief review is in order, wouldn't you say? We have to remember what Jesus is responding to in Peter's great confession, or we have no hope of understanding Jesus' response. Context is important in Bible interpretation, isn't it? As Jesus and the disciples were entering Caesarea Philippi, Jesus asked them a question. And in that question, he identifies himself as the fulfillment of an important Old Testament figure here in Matthew 16, 14. He was, speaking, he was asking the disciples, Who do people say that I, the Son of Man, am? And if you remember what it means to be the Son of Man, in order to figure out what does the Son of Man mean, we can go in one or two places. We can go to our imagination, or we can go to God's revelation. Which one do you think is better? We interpret Scripture by Scripture. This title wasn't some cool title that Jesus thought up for Himself. It comes directly from the Old Testament in Daniel 7, 9-14, where it says, I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took His seat. His vesture was like white snow, and His hair of His head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before Him. Thousands upon thousands were attending to Him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before Him. The court sat and the books were open. And I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. And I kept looking until the beast was slain, and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beasts, and these beasts in this horn, it's referring to governmental powers. The rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away. But an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. And I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. That his dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. That this Son of Man figure is the one that's going to come and abolish all other authorities. They are called beasts. Why beasts? Because state governments are totalitarian and evil and oppressive. When they're ruled over by mere men, it becomes tyranny. But there will be a king who will come one day and put all those other governments beneath his feet before the Ancient of Days. Jesus is saying, who do men say that I, he's identifying himself, I'm the Son of Man, I'm the one that's going to do this, but who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am. The disciples responded and said, Well, some say you're John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Each one of these speculations from the the masses saw Jesus as the forerunner of the Messiah, but not as the Messiah himself. They couldn't deny Jesus' supernatural powers, but they wouldn't accept Him as the promised King who was to have an everlasting dominion who, that would not pass away and a kingdom that would not be destroyed. So then Jesus asked them in verse 15, Who do you say that I am? And Peter boldly proclaimed, You are the Christ. 
the Son of the living God. What a confession. This small group of men entering Caesarea Philippi, a place named after the Jewish Petrarch Philip, and a Roman Caesar, and and Peter says that Jesus is not only the Christ, the promised Jewish Messiah, who would take over the throne of David, supplanting Philip the Petrarch, but the Son of the living God. Remember that title. The title of the Caesars, Julius Caesar, was called the Divine Julius. And his son, Caesar Augustus, the one that the city is named after, Philipp, uh, Caesarea Philippi, he, he was named Divus Philius, the Son of God. And so Peter is saying, you the Son of Man, you're higher than our Jewish authorities, Philip, you're the Christ, and you're higher than the so-called Son of God, this Caesar Augustus, who by this time is actually dead. You're the Son of God, but you're the Son of the living God. You're going to have a dominion that will never end. You are who you say you are. You're higher than every kingdom, every power, every authority, everywhere. The beasts are being destroyed and laid beside you. That's exciting, isn't it? Jesus is the Son of the living God. He's the Lord, not Caesar. As the eternal Son of the living God, He can fulfill Daniel 7.14. To Him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. Then all the peoples, nations, and men of every language, they all will serve you, Jesus. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. You have to live forever to have a dominion that won't pass away, don't you? And His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Jesus and His twelve men... In the middle of the vast Roman Empire, walking into Caesarea Philippi, 13 guys, and Peter proclaims the superiority of Jesus over all of it. Why are we so pessimistic? I can't figure it out. We, we look around and we think we have no chance and the church has built and grown for millennia now and we, we're so pessimistic and they're saying, you're the son of the living God. You're going to have an everlasting dominion and we're going to inherit the twelve tribes and sit on them and reign and rule with you. Why are we so pessimistic? It's foolish, isn't it? So, what's Jesus' response to this confession? Well, he's not disagreeing, is he? He enthusiastically agrees with Peter's assessment In our first look at Jesus' response, we saw how that Jesus highlighted the need for illumination in order to confess Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Blessed means fortunate or happy are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but our Father who is in heaven. We must never forget this humbling truth that it's by mercy, not merit, that we believe. Faith is a gift of God. And we spent a lot of time considering our second point, the foundation of the church. I say unto you that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I build my church. The foundation, as we saw, is rightly understood as Peter, and by extension all of the apostles along with the prophets, that they tell us who Jesus is. He's the chief cornerstone. He's built on the, chief cor- on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles, with Christ Jesus being the chief cornerstone. Therefore, that's how we know who Jesus is and the kingdom was built on that testimony. The prophets looking forward to Jesus, the apostles looking back. I covered that in much detail. And, but then I only introduced the last three points because I spent so much time on that second one because I had to explain to you why I had flip-flopped. When I'm a flip-flopper, I've got to let you know why I'm a flip-flopper. You won't trust me, right? So the sermon was dominated by that. So that's to say I left a lot of meat on the bone. And 
I'm a very masculine man. I don't like wasting meat. So let's stick it to PETA this morning and get all the meat we can by returning to what it is that Christ built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. What is His creation that He's building on that foundation? He says in verse 18, the second part, that I will build my church. I love the definite nature of this text. It's just as definite as Peter's confession was, isn't it? It says, I, Christ, the Son of God, will build my church. Not try to. He will build it. But what is this church that he is building? Well, the, the word here is the ecclesia. The called out ones. It was a common Greek term for an assembly of people. Political and social as well as religious. It's, it's the people of God assembled with all of their connotations. The priesthood, the prophets, the, uh, the king. It's all of this together. The people of God as a people can combine together in an assembly. But in a Jewish context, it would be particularly heard as echoing its frequent use in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. In the Septuagint, the ecclesia was always the, the assembly of the people of God. It's always meant the assembly of the national community of Israel. So we should understand this as a new application of an Old Testament word. A word proudly owned by the people of Israel as defining their identity as God's people. But Jesus speaks with extraordinary boldness saying, upon this rock I will build my ecclesia. The unusual Greek word order draws particular attention to the might that you all have, they have their ecclesia, their assembly of the Jewish people, but I'm going to build a new, my assembly is going to be different than what they have. It is his assembly, my church, and he will absolutely build it. But what's different about this new ecclesia, this new assembly of the people of God, that it will be composed of a different kind of sons of Abraham. Israel was the people of God, right? They looked back to their lineage with great pride, the physical sons of Abraham. But Matthew's entire gospel is centered around a change. As we've worked our way through the book, we've uncovered, we've covered in that in many, many, much detail many times. So I don't want to spend too much time proving something that we've already demonstrated time and time again. But for the sake of time, let's simply look at one of the clearest texts pointing to this coming reality, referring to the faith of the Roman centurion. Look back with me. It's just a couple of pages. Back in Matthew 8, 10 through 12. Jesus says to the Roman centurion, Truly I say to you, I've not found such a great faith with anyone in Israel. And I say to you that many will come from the east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. That you've got an assembly of people, but these people are coming from the east and west, from other nations. Just like the Roman centurion is not a Jew, they're going to come from all around and they're going to recline with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast they're not part of the assembly. They're going to be cast out into outer darkness. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Do you see it right there? Jesus is already foreshadowed. It's not the only time he's foreshadowed it, but this one's very, very clear, isn't it? A new assembly, a new people of God is going to be assembled. Jesus is going to build something different. It's not going to be 
the, just the genealogical sons of Abraham. Jesus warns the Jewish leaders directly after the parable of the landowner later. Landowner later. Look also in Matthew 21, 42-45. After Jesus is rejected by the Jews, that He came to His own and His own received Him not, right? The stone, Matthew 21, 42-45, which the builders rejected... This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, since you rejected me, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you, the old assembly, the old gathered people of God. That kingdom, it's taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. But did they repent? No. They were even more resolved in their rejection. By verse 36 it says... Uh, wait, for, for 45, it says, When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parable, they understood that he was speaking about them. And then they, when they sought to seize him, they feared the people. So they actually wanted to kill him because of it. And the only thing that kept him from it was that he feared the people during that little time. They ended up not fearing too much because they get it done just a few chapters later, don't they? After the crucifixion and resurrection, the apostles highlight this new people of God again and again. You can turn here if you want, but this will be familiar to you. In Galatians 3, 6 through 9. Actually, do turn there. Don't, I don't care if you want to or not. Turn there. Galatians 3, 6 through 9. It says, Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that those who are of the faith, those who are of faith, are the sons of Abraham. Can it be any more clear? There's a new people of God. Is it physical lineage? People of faith are the sons of Abraham. The Scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All nations will be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believing one. And later in that same chapter, Galatians 3, 28-29, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. It was always for a people of faith that would be to all the nations, that all nations would be blessed, that all the beasts of the earth would be overthrown, and there would be an eternal dominion, an eternal kingdom ushered in by King Jesus that He would gather all of His people from all tribes, tongues, and nations to Himself. A new people of God. Very clear, isn't it? So it's unsurprising that Jesus goes from the ecclesia, this new assembly of the people of God, and applies the promise of the Abrahamic covenant to His ecclesia, to the church. He says that He will build on the foundation of the apostles. He tells them, you're going to get the promise of the Abrahamic covenant. What is that? Let me show you what I mean. Where's the Abrahamic covenant? Genesis 22, 17-18. Indeed, I will greatly bless you, God told Abraham, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. Does that sound familiar to our text of what you know is coming up here? And in your seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. 
possess the gate of his enemies. What, is it, what does Jesus tell this new assembly? These, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. And what? The gates of hell will not prevail against They won't be able to stand against you. You'll come to possess them, church, and you'll succeed. You will disciple all the nations. What was promised to Abraham that the Jews so desperately wanted to do as a physical nation, as a, as a physical lineage, you, as the people of faith, you will accomplish it. Not Abraham. You'll possess the gates of your enemies. The gates of hell itself will not prevail against the church as it goes forward. Israel had rejected the prophets and stoned those that were sent to her. And what was the outcome? Matthew 23, 37-38. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those that were sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way that a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you would not behold your house is being left to you desolate. Their temple, where they enjoyed the presence of God, would be destroyed within a generation. And a new people of God would become a new temple. The Holy Spirit Himself would endow this new people, empowering them to be what national Israel had failed to be, and to do what national Israel had failed to do. The restoration of the nation of Israel that they wanted so badly, the promises of the Abrahamic covenant that they believed would be theirs, would never be theirs. It would be taken away from them. But it's not just gone. It's given to a people who are bearing the fruit thereof because they're a people of faith. It was not those who shared the genetics of Abraham who had possessed the gates of their enemies, but it was those who had the faith of Abraham who would possess the gates of their enemies. The new ecclesia of King Jesus would absolutely succeed in making disciples of all the nations. The very gates of hell would not prevail against the church. And that would lead to blessing. The Abrahamic blessing is not that the offering of Abraham would possess the offspring of Abraham would possess the gates of his enemies, and that through his seed all nations of the world would be cursed, I mean crushed, but it's that they would possess the gates of their enemies, and that through the offspring of Abraham all the nations would be what? Would be blessed. We're not wanting to take over the world to curse the world. We're wanting the gospel to take under the world because Jesus' yoke is easy and His burden is light and it can undo all the tyranny. No more let sin and sorrow roam nor thorns infest the ground. We want the curse completely overcome. And it's overcome through the gospel as it goes and it conquers the hearts of men and transforms. You know what? When people get saved, it transforms them. And when people, when a whole lot of people get saved, it transforms communities. And when a whole lot of communities get saved, it transforms states. And when a whole lot of states get saved, it transforms nations. You know that's kind of how it works. And that's the goal. To see a renewed world through His seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So He'll possess the gates of His enemies, and through His seed, all nations will be blessed. You say, well, that's not in our text. Well, actually it is, but in a thinly veiled way. The blessing comes through the arrival of the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. I will give you the keys to the kingdom. This kingdom ushers in the blessing of God on all the nations. And whatever we bind on earth will be what was bound in heaven, and whatever we loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. We're going to get to that in a minute, but let's start with the key imagery. It has as its starting point the need for the gates of the kingdom of heaven to be open for people to get in it, doesn't it? 
In Matthew, the imagery of entering the kingdom as a goal first services in Matthew 5, 17-20. And guess what it's related to? It's related to God's law. People hate the law today. You know why? Because it means you have to obey King Jesus. You say, we need to obey the law of God, and people say, oh, you're a legalist. Don't they? Immediately. Which means we've got a godless people who don't obey the law, and then you have a godless society around you, and do you see the blessing of God on a people that's a godless society? Absolutely not. But look what Jesus says about the kingdom of heaven in Matthew 5, 17-20. You might as well turn there. I'm having to turn everywhere. Turn here too. Matthew 5, 17-20. Jesus, in His inaugural address, the Sermon on the Mount, announcing Himself as King Jesus with the twelve disciples coming around Him, inaugurating the kingdom of heaven. He says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you that until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until it is all fulfilled. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You can't, apart from the law of God, there is no kingdom of heaven. You know that? The kingdom, the law of God, the reign of God, the rule of God, you can't have a kingdom without the kingdom ethic and without the laws of that kingdom. And then this theme runs like a thread through the gospel. We have a contrasting image of the kingdom of heaven shutting people out. Look in Matthew 23, 13, what Jesus says the Pharisees do. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people, for you do not enter it yourself, nor allow those who are entering it to go in. The problem is not that the law is bad, but their misinterpretation of the law. Peter and the church, by extension, as we will see in a few years when we get to Matthew 18, 15 through 20, has the keys in order to be able to open the door of the kingdom of heaven. So the gates of the godless nations where the whole world is destined for hell will not prevail against us because the keys of the kingdom belong to the church and we rightly disciple the nations to observe whatever Christ has commanded us. Where the scribes and Pharisees wrongly applied the law, promising people entrance to the kingdom of heaven, but in reality they went traveled on sea and land to make one proselyte. But when they did, when one became a proselyte of the scribes and Pharisees, he made, they made them twice the sons of hell as you are. They're, the, they, they're not teaching God's law rightly. They're twisting it. They have an, an outward form of righteousness that's not heart deep. And then they disciple people to have the pharisaical righteousness, but it didn't lead to any sort of blessing of God because it was fake. It was a mask. It was a veneer. It was false. And it only led to hell. And they discipled people in it. But it couldn't usher in the kingdom of God. But Jesus rightly preached the law of God. Kingdom has to have a kingdom ethic. So, what is this binding and loosing? What's well, also related to the same thing? Binding and loosing are used in rabbinic literature for de- declaring what is and what is not permitted. 
The rabbis would say, your conscience is bound here, but it's loosed here. Do you think they bound right or wrongly? They did it wrongly. They had their halakha. The self-described job of the scribes and Pharisees was that they were going to disciple people, bind and loose the consciences to teach them rightly the law of God. But they did it completely wrong. The law is good. We, man, we've got to return to believing that the law of God is good. Romans 7.12, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. It is by adherence to God's laws that nations are blessed. And it's by rejection to God's laws that they are cursed. The farther you get from God's law, the more death and destruction and carnage and theft and awfulness that you'll have in a society. It will be complete societal decay and disruption. The farther you get from God's law, you get the curses. The closer you get... You get the blessings on entire peoples. That explains why Jesus refers to the gates of the enemy as the gates of hell or Hades or the grave. The gates of Hades is a metaphor for death, which here contrasts strikingly with you're the son of the living God. In the Old Testament, the gates of death describe the place to which dead people go. In Job 38, 17, Psalm 9, 13, you'll see it. Psalm 107, 18. And in Isaiah 38.10, the phrase, the gates of Sheol is used in the same way. Hades is the New Testament equivalent of Sheol, of the place of the dead. That, that This same Greek phrase is here used in the exact sense of Psalm 38.10. That there's gates, that there, there's, there's teachings of whole people groups that they hold to and that they believe is true. The way that seems right to man, but the end thereof is the ways of death. And they believe, they'll fight you tooth and nail over what righteousness is. You don't believe me? Put truth of Scripture on Twitter and see how long it takes for somebody to put a fight with you. They're fighting against truth, entrenched in their ideas of righteousness, going headlong toward the very things that will absolutely destroy them, aren't they? God's law promises blessing in life, but breaking it threatens curses and death. Listen to this. Deuteronomy 4, 1 through 2. Now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and judgments which I am teaching you to perform so that you might live and go in and take possession of the land which the Lord your God, your fathers, have given to you. You shall not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor take away that you might keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I am commanding you. Deuteronomy 5.33 You shall walk in all of the ways which the Lord your God has commanded you. Why? So that you might live and that it might be well with you. Do you see that? Covenantal blessings. Obey and you live and it goes well with you. And that you might prolong your days in the land which you shall possess. Deuteronomy 8.1 All of the commandments that I am commanding you today, you shall be careful to do them that you might live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord your God swore to give to your forefathers. Deuteronomy 30, 19-20 I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day, for I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you might live, you and your descendants, by loving the Lord your God, by obeying His voice, and by holding fast to Him. For this is your life and the length of days that you might live in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give to them. You think the commandments of God matter? The law of God matters? Paul assures the Jews that they are in no better state than the Gentiles when they have the law but they disregard it 
Christians will observe everything that Christ, the perfect lawgiver, said. And we will teach the nations to do so as well and make disciples of the nations. And it will bring about blessing on all of the peoples of the earth when we're doing our job. That's what he's saying. We will do when we're do when we are repented ourselves, not entangled in the vices of our current culture, and living according in obedience to the commands of Christ. That's what we're called to. Now, at this point, my guess is that you're getting nervous. You're thinking, but Pastor Matt, you aren't sounding very reformed right now. If, if you even think I'm worthy of the title Pastor Matt anymore. After I've said all this. You're thinking, Romans 3.20 says, By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Man, you got me. I hadn't even thought of that. No. You might be thinking, easy, Pastor Matt. You're starting to sound like one of those Judaizers. If you add law keeping to faith, then you destroy the work of Christ. Galatians 5.4, Matt, you forgot it too. You've been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. Man, I wish I'd have thought of that when I was writing this sermon. Trust me, I know these verses. And I'm most definitely reformed. But unfortunately, in most of the whole young, restless, and so-called reformed movement, it's not reformed at all. They're so teriologically Calvinistic, they are that. But they are most definitely not reformed. The all of Christ for all of life piety of Calvin that transformed Geneva and led to the United States Constitution has been replaced with a Gnostic spiritual realm only pietism that relegates the kingdom of God to the church only with no jurisdiction over the state. That's the problem. Of course I know Romans 3.20 By the works of the law no flesh will be justified in this sight for by the law is knowledge of sin. But I didn't say anything about justification. We're speaking different languages. I'm not talking about getting forgiven and pardoned for your sin through the priestly ministry of the church. I'm talking about the state doing its job and having the ministry of the sword. That takes me back to the point that I named last week, or, or last time I preached on this text, just for a little William Wallace-like pick-a-fight funsies, but colonization. Colonization. Upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overpower it. So you've got the church, and I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven and the church, they're... The kingdom of heaven includes this government over the church, but it's not limited to Christ's government over the church. It's bigger than that. It's the rule of Christ over everything. Christians today have tapped out in the culture wars. Have you noticed? We just need to have a faithful presence in a post-Christian society. Why? Why do we have to accept that it's a post-Christian society? Are the Spirit and the gifts ours? Can we go and through them do valiantly from victory unto the victory? Will He lead His army until every foe is vanquished and Christ is Lord indeed? Do we believe what we sing and what we see in the Scriptures? We've tapped out of the culture wars because we bought into this pietism that relegates the kingdom of heaven to just the ministration of grace. It's not. 
Everything is about getting souls into heaven only with no thought of seeing God's will done on the earth. Everything is about Christian individuals. And any mention of a Christian government is looked upon with more than skepticism, but with outright derision. Have you noticed? But the historical Reformed tradition rightly understood and articulated the doctrine of sphere sovereignty. That there is self-government, there is family government, there is church government, and there is civil government. There's all these different types of government. Over which one of those do you think Christ is sovereign? There's your problem. In most people's theology today, Jesus is Lord over the church. But the world, it belongs to the evil one. Guys, the ruler of this world has been cast out. And he has a universal dominion. And we're announcing his already existing victory over all of the nations of the world. That's the Reformed Gospel. That's Reformed theology. We ain't saying nothing about getting everybody saved. Yeah, we want that. But we're saying to bring blessing if they're saved or not. There is benefit and blessing for people if they are ruled over according to the law of God instead of according to the opinion of pagans. I've said it before and I'll say it until this poor, lisping, stammering tongue lies silent in the grave. Yes, I believe in the separation of church and state. But I insist and will until I die that Jesus Christ is Lord of both church and state. The church is the priestly ministry of grace. We preach the forgiveness of sins by faith in Christ and by faith in Christ alone. We administer the table, the sacraments. We encourage you with the assurances of grace. Jesus Christ is Lord over the church and He tells us what to do and how to do it and we obey Him. And obeying Him through the church is the keys to the kingdom, to all of society. The church is the problem. Man, we need to get the right person in the White House. No, we need to get the right people in the pulpits. We need to get the right people doing the right things, obeying what God says for the church to do. And the keys to the whole kingdom are in the church repenting and being who they're supposed to be. Trying to change everything through elections. Good luck. Which reprobate do you want to elect this time? God changes the world through election by electing a people and then making them, conforming them to the image of Christ Jesus. And then from that, it goes and it changes the world. It's His election of us that changes us and makes us and conforms us to the image that changes the world. It's not us electing the right people so that they can change the world and make it a better place. Jesus will do it or it won't be done. So yeah, Jesus is Lord over the church. But the state is the kingly ministry of justice. Romans 13, 3-4 Rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good and you will have praise from the same. Is that always true? It's their job. It's not always true. The thing is, if they punish you for doing good or... I mean, if they punish you when you're doing good, what do we do? We say, so what? We still aren't afraid, right? Sometimes you have wicked governments that punish good and reward evil when the government's job is to reward good and punish evil. Look what it says. 
Do what is good and you'll have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God. It's a servant of God for your good. God established human governments as a minister of God. Whose authority is the government under this? It's just a servant of God. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. It is their job, where it's our job to administer the sacraments, to preach the gospel, to push people toward faith in Christ, to encourage them with the assurances of grace. It's the government's job to praise and to reward what is good and to rebuke and punish what is evil. But according to what standard? Some arbitrary standard that says there's no such thing as boys and girls? And homosexuality is just fine and kill all the babies you want to and there's no gender distinction or gender roles or evil. Is that, is that what's going to bring about human flourishing? Is that what, that's what they punish, isn't it? And that's what they reward. No, it's supposed to be according to Jesus Christ if we want to flourish in society. To have a Christian nation, all the citizens need not to be born again any more than to have all of the children in the family be born again to have a Christian family. Say, a Christian nation, well, you can't make people be saved. No, but you can rule over them according to the law of God and that will bring in blessing on people because it's not chaos. The leader just has to carry out his duties under the lordship of King Jesus. Jesus is the father of fathers in the home. He's the shepherd of the under-shepherds in the church and he's the king of kings and the lord of lords over the state. Sound familiar? Listen, 1 Timothy 6, 13-16. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate. What was that confession? We saw it a few weeks ago in our look at Matthew, uh, John 18, didn't we? It was that His kingdom was not of this world. It was superior. His, his authority was not under Rome's but above Rome's. Pilate thought, am I a Jew? You don't have any jurisdiction over me. He said, hey, yeah, i got jurisdiction over you. My kingdom's not of this world. It's higher than Rome. And what's happening is under the plan of God. That's the good confession. That you keep the commandment without stain or reproach. Wait, you, you might have had a problem earlier. I was reading from Deuteronomy. Now I'm reading from Timothy. Because a lot of people think, oh, the New Testament. Why are you reading from the Old Testament? Because it's all God's revealed Word and nothing changes. That you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of the Lord Jesus, which He will bring about at the proper time. He's coming back at the proper time. In the meantime, we keep the commandment without stain or reproach. Say, I thought we weren't saved by keeping the law. I didn't say anything about being saved. We're not saved by keeping the law. We keep the law because we're saved. We want to obey what Jesus said because we actually believe Jesus is Lord and we believe that His ways are the blessed ways. We got it all twisted. Because Satan hates people that actually keep the commandments of God because they look like Jesus. They're imaging Jesus when they keep the commandments of God who always kept the commandments of God and never sinned. So he wants us to believe, oh, I don't have to obey any of the commandments of God because I believe that because once I walked an aisle and said a prayer and now I'm going to heaven, I don't need to worry about you know changing or repenting or anything like that because I've got heaven sealed and this whole world's going to hell anyway. That's not the Reformed Gospel. We've left it. We've been duped. And society's paying the price. We're under the judgment of God by a million microtransgressions and slips. One little slip at a time. A societal slow fade. 
He who is the blessed and only sovereign. Listen to what it says in 1 Timothy 6. The King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, which no man has seen or can see, to Him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Do you think Paul ever read Daniel 7? <coughs> I think he did. Revelation 1, 4-6. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from Him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before His throne, and from Christ Jesus, the faithful witness, the firstborn from dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, the ruler of all the kings of the earth, He's the ruler of kings, to Him who loves us and released us from our sins by His blood, and He has made us to be a kingdom, different things. He's released us from the ministry of grace through the church, forgiven through His blood. But He's made us to be a kingdom and priests to His God and Father. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Well, we need to lay aside all authority. No, 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 no. All authority was given to Christ in heaven and on earth. And because that's true, we're to go and make disciples of all the nations. Where are we getting this garbage? Lay aside all, all authority. We, gotta, we, we shouldn't crave any authority or any power. We want to be ruled over by pagans? Is that what we want for society? We've lost our minds. The devil sold us a big lie. We actually think we're holy because we believe it. It's absolute insanity. What is this dominion? Revelation eleven fifteen. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and His Christ, and He will reign forever and ever. That's Revelation eleven fifteen. Well, well, the kingdom is separate from the, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and His Christ. You say, well, I don't interpret it that way. I didn't interpret it. I read it. <coughs> the kingdom of this world has become. It's already a reality. Already, but not yet. We stand in the reality. We go out and we proclaim it unashamedly. Like Josh Woody did yesterday. How many were at Cole's graduation? He said some things that if you weren't a seasoned believer, it was so countercultural. It wasn't the fights that we're fighting today. It was the fights that were fighting 150 years ago that we were giving up the ground on. But we go back and we say, hey, it doesn't matter if nobody's heard this in 100 years and you sound like a fool. I am, I'm not shameless, but I'm unashamed. I'm shameful of the things I should be ashamed of, but what God's Word reveals, I stand on it unashamedly. Go back to that and watch God change the world. The church is always disgraced. I don't want to give up another step. No, 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 no. Okay, fine. You're pushing so hard, I'll give you that. But no more when we're supposed to be storming forward. And the gates of hell will not prevail against us. The problem with progressives is that they have a vision and they're pushing way, way out there and they don't give up. As loudish as it might sound, they keep pushing. The new Green Deal came out like a decade decade ago. Everybody's like, oh, that's absolutely insane. Now they're doing it. You're like, oh, well, how far is it going to go? As far as they keep pushing and we stop pushing back. We don't fight. We don't proclaim anything. We're ashamed of God's Word. We're ashamed of God's law. They might not like us. They might do church discipline on us. We'll get to that next week. The gates of hell have no chance when we're a repentant people walking in the power of the Holy Spirit unashamed of His laws 
observing them and teaching others to do it. They cannot prevail against it. Cannot. Jesus, not Caesar, nor any other earthly ruler, is a figure of universal authority and sovereignty. We read Daniel 7, 19-14. Remember, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Reminds me of John 12, 31-32. Now judgment is all upon the world. Jesus says this, when he's being betrayed by Judas, and now the ruler of this world will be cast out, and if I am lifted up, then I will draw all men to myself. You think Jesus had read Daniel 7? I think we need to read it a lot more too. Matthew 12, 28-29, Jesus says, If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then what? Then the kingdom of God has come upon... We're waiting on Jesus Jesus to bring the kingdom. He already brought it. He said He did. It's in our midst. For some reason, the church likes the idea. It's a responsibility-less surrender is what it is. We want to be the damsel in distress who's just waiting on King Jesus to come back and save us, when, save us from all of the bad people all around. When He calls you to stand up and be men and be conformed to the image of Christ and to conquer all the foes because you've got the restored image of God. You are not your mere Adam anymore. You're the second man Adam, the last man Adam, and indwelled by the Holy Spirit of the living God and that you can actually win battles. But then we have responsibility. Right. That's what nobody wants. I want to whine about how bad everything is. And, well, one day Jesus will come and save us from it. No, no, no. Jesus already saved us from it on the cross. Now He gives you the Spirit and He tells you to go fight. And save other people from it. By His power and by His Spirit. That's the Reformed Gospel. All of Christ. For all of life. I just got to go get my weekly pep rally so I can make it through my week. No, no, no. All of Christ for all of life. We have the keys. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Who has them? Jesus gave Peter the keys. Whatever he binds on earth will be what was bound in heaven. And then that same imagery is used in Matthew 18 that whatever we as the church bind on earth will be bound in heaven. By extension, the church is, has the keys to the kingdom. It's built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ being the cornerstone, and we have the keys to the kingdom. And look what, look what happened. It's actually prophesied that this would happen. You, 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 I read Daniel 7, 14. Listen to what Daniel 7, 21 and 22 says. I kept looking... And the horn was raging war with saints. Remember, it was that horn, it was overthrown and there was a dominion, but it was prolonged for a time. Remember that? So even though the kingdom's established, the horn is waging war with the saints and overpowering them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the highest one and the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. The delegation of kingdom authority took place here with those keys representing the authority of the kingdom being given to the church. That's the saints being given the possession of the kingdom. I'm just going to read a few verses for you. 
That is Colossians 1, 26-29. The mystery which has been hidden from past ages and generations, but now has been manifested to His saints, to whom God willed to make known the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, not just the Jewish, gen, gen, the, uh, those of Jewish descent, they're not the sons of Abraham, but Christ in you, the hope of glory, the people of faith, are the assembly of God. We proclaim Him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we might present every man complete in Christ. For this I labor, striving according to His power which works in me mightily. We're striving to present how many men? We're teaching, admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom so that we might present every man complete in Christ. That's our goal. Every man. Well, how are we ever going to accomplish that? Well, because it's not striving by ourselves. It's striving according to His power which works mightily within us. Were not the right man on our side, our striving would be losing. But He is. We have all authority on heaven and earth in Christ Jesus. You see that again and again, don't you? Uh, that now unto Him who's able to do uh, more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. To Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. We, we, we want too little. We pray too small of prayers. God, help my hangnail instead of God, conquer this whole city in your name for your name's sake. Let me present everybody in this whole city complete in Christ. Let us see the whole community subjected to King Jesus. Let us see the nations transformed. We pray too small. Got a little tiny God instead of a God that is Lord of heaven and earth. So I unashamedly use this word colonization. I'm going to have... You know, I, I did it with that for William Wallace funsies, right? Just to pick a fight. But what does it mean? What does the word colonization mean? Let, let me give you the dictionary definition of colonization. The subjugation of a people or area, especially as an extension of state power. 1 Corinthians 15, 26-27. I mean, 24-26. through 26. Then comes the end when He hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when He has abolished all rule, all authority, and all power. What? The subjugation of people, especially an extension of state power. That He hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when He has abolished all rule and all authority and power, for He must reign until He has put all of His enemies under His feet. And the last enemy that will be abolished is death itself, after that's accomplished. That sounds like colonization, doesn't it? The whole world being Christianized. Another definition. The spread and development of an organism in a new area or habitat. Matthew 13, 31-33. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sold in his field. Jesus sold the mustard seed, the kingdom, in his field. And though it's smaller than all the other seeds, when it is full grown, it's larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air nest in its branches. A small organism in a new habitat that takes over and it blesses all the peoples of the earth. Go back and listen to that sermon if you don't remember. That's exactly what this parable is saying. The present, here's a, here's a third definition. The presence and multiplication of a microorganism such as leaven in or on a host. I ain't even making this up. 
He spoke another parable then. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. And not only grows up and blesses all the nations of the earth, but it totally transforms everything that it touches. The after practice of appropriating something that one does not have a right to. That one doesn't sound right until you consider that the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and hid again and for joy over it goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. What did the world used to be under the dominion of it? Who used to have dominion over the world? The ruler of this world has been cast out. He bought the field. Satan offered to give Jesus the kingdom because it had all been delivered to him if he would just bow down and worship him. Jesus didn't argue with him because he didn't have to because he wasn't going to bow down and worship him to get the kingdom. He was going to buy it outright by dying on the cross to gain victory over it himself to colonize the whole world and transform it all legitimately. Or the last one, the state of being colonized, subjugated to a foreign power. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and His Christ. Yeah, I might have been William Wallace in picking a fight for funsies, but it's exactly what Jesus did. And exactly what we as the church are called to do. Guys, I don't care about you dominating your Madden season if you've got any gamers in here. Building your little games of whatever, because I don't know what any of the games are anymore, because I gave that up, all that stuff up a few years ago when God finally gave, granted me repentance from all those time wasters. We've got real life things we're supposed to be going and doing and we're wasting our time on frivialities, on idols. We just can't make any progress because we're wasting our lives on nothing. That's why. Anybody ever seen The Lion King? Mufasa says to Simba, says, Look, everything the light touches is our kingdom. Remember that? Simba says, Wow. The father says, the king's time as ruler rises and falls like the sun. One day, Simba, the sun will set on my time here and will rise with you as a new king. Simba says, and this will be mine? The father says, everything. And Simba says, in awe, everything the light touches? And he looks off in the distance and he says, what about that shadowy place over there? The father says, it's beyond our borders. You must never go there, Simba. Nothing is beyond our borders. He has universal dominion over everything. He is a white Mufasa who rises and falls with the sun. He is established at the right hand of the Father on high, reigning through His church, and the dominion will extend, and we are to go and take the shadowy places. That's a calling. That's our birthright as the sons of Abraham. To possess the gates of our enemies and that through that, not to crush them, but that all the nations would be blessed through you. Everywhere in the Old Testament, I wanted to read a ton of scriptures here, but the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from the Petronius' feet until Shiloh, the one who belongs, comes, the one who really owns the ruler's staff. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. Everywhere you see the prophecy of Christ coming, you're going to see this thing. The obedience of all the peoples. The colonization of everybody. The subjugation of all the nations to King Jesus. 
Isaiah 42, 1 through 4. Behold my servant whom I behold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. Plural. He will not cry or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. Go into all the nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever He commanded. The coastlines wait expectantly for His law. They're waiting for something. We bring it to them. They'll hate you for it at first, but you keep on in perseverance. Sometimes you suffer, but even in your suffering, you win. And the gates of hell will not prevail against us. If you say something like, who are we to tell other nations how to live? They've got their ways of life. Who are we to think that our religion and way of life is superior to, to theirs? Congratulations, you're a postmodernist and not a Christian. You don't believe in absolute truth. You don't believe that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, that His ways actually are the ways of truth, that He is the reflection of the actual law of God itself, and that when we teach people to observe it, that it will bring in their blessings. You don't believe that. You need to repent and become a Christian. And any of your friends that believe it too, they might call themselves Christians, but if they don't believe that we should disciple the nations, they're not. It's not what a Christian is. Next week we'll get to delineation. I'll give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. It is the church, not the state, who has the keys to the kingdom. And it's the church that will teach the nations to observe whatever Christ commanded. We will wrestle through what is right and wrong and preach it valiantly. The law will serve three purposes. The law will show us our duty. The duty is not abrogated. That is, how, that is what righteousness looks like. That's how we should live. God's law. But, have any of us lived that way? No. Shows us our duty. Makes clear our condemnation. We stand condemned, guys. Under the law of God, we stand condemned. But it shows us our need for a Savior. The third duty. The third function of the law. It shows us our need of what? Of a Savior. And there is one. How many of you are like, man, I'm a sinner. You hear this sermon and you're like, I'm a sinner. I'm so messed up. Yep. And that's why there's a ministration of grace through the shed blood of Christ Jesus to atone for our sins. And then we're discipled in the church and we become sanctified. We're justified through faith in Christ Jesus, but we're sanctified in the church to increasingly be conformed to the image of Christ. Justification is the beginning. Sanctification is holyification. Being conformed to the image of Christ or having increasingly God's law be your character. And none of us figure that out on our own. It's done in the church. When we see it, we go to one another. We call each other, Brother, I think you're wrong here. I think you're in sin. And if they won't hear us, we take two or three more. And if they won't hear us then, we bring it before the whole church. And if they won't hear the church, what happens? We let them be to us as a publican, I mean, as a, as a Gentile and a tax collector. We, they're not part of the community of faith. We do church discipline. We actually cancel culture. I'm gonna, this is next week. I'm getting ahead of myself. That's biblical. 
that if they call themselves, if they name the name of Christ, but they won't repent of what sin is, the whole church is calling them to repent and they won't. We put them out of the church and we have nothing else to do with them. Why? So that they might be ashamed. And that it might bring them back and they might repent. Because they no longer have the protection and the unity in the community that they were a part of. And that that's a loving thing. That when the church utilizes the keys, that that's the keys of the kingdom. It goes on to say, whatever you bind on earth, whatever the church binds on earth, when we say, yeah, you're bound to this, they have to do it, or you're loose. Hey, I think that this is a gray area, and I understand where both of you come from. I don't think they're in rebellion here, and they have the freedom to walk in it. That whatever we bind on earth will be what was bound in heaven as the church. But the church must do the binding and loosing because that's the key to the kingdom. You know who's doing a great job of that? Culture. The kingdom of this world. Say something that they think is remotely sexist or remotely racist or remotely transphobic. And what do they do? They'll find you. They might fire you. You lose your job. You lose your livelihood. You lose your reputation. If you'll come back and repent, if you'll repent to them, they'll restore you. You have to not only pay the fine, but you have to come back and you have to tell them how sorry you are that you violated their standard of right and wrong. And it's transforming all the world around us because they're exercising the keys to their kingdom when we're supposed to be coming out of their kingdom anyway. Why do we care if they kick us out? We can come over and we can be sufficient people with the people of God and have a community of faith and cooperate with one another. But no, no, no. We're addicted to the comfort and ease of their system. Why are they winning? Because they're using the keys to their kingdom and we're not using ours. More on that next week. More on that next week. But that takes us to the table today. Man of Fellowship, we take this table very seriously because we believe that the right administration of the sacraments is you belong if you're obeying King Jesus, trusting in Christ alone for your righteousness, even when you obey. You're trying to disciple others. You're forgiving as you've also been forgiven. And you're using your gifts to expand the kingdom to the end of the earth. We believe when we extend the table, we're telling everybody here that we think this person bears those marks in their life. It's a big deal. And we extend the table not only those. There's three types of communion. There's close communion. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, there's open communion where everybody just takes. You just, hey, you come up here and take. We don't know anything about you. That's unbiblical. Didn't exist until like the 1800s. Unbiblical. It's the way it's done in most churches, but it's actually unbiblical. I'm not saying that they aren't, have good motives and think that they're right, but it's not biblical. You can't fence the table. You can't refuse to eat with somebody that's a so-called believer if you're not actually knowing who they are. So it's unbiblical. But there's two other types. Close communion, where you, uh, closed communion, where it's only members of your own church. But we, we have the third type. We extend the table to covenant members here at Manual Fellowship and to members of other churches who are in good standing and regular attendance under the authority of that church with a recommendation from somebody in our church that they're actually living these things out. Why? Well, we want to make friends, but we're called to make disciples. And you know where disciples are made? In the local church. That's where you grow up into the head, which is Christ Jesus. That's where the gifts function. If you're not in a church, we use this as an opportunity to tell you, it don't have to be here, it needs to be somewhere. So if we don't know, if you've not been recommended to the table, we don't know where you're going, we're not inviting you to the table today, but we are inviting you to get to know it and join the church. It's a real invitation to become part of the church so you can have not the symbol, but the reality of church membership. Today we're extending the table to everyone in our church. 
Now you know who you are. And to Jonathan Sams, I believe, he's a, and his daughters. He's a member in good standing of Corinthian Church, and he's being recommended to us by Isaac Woody. Let's celebrate these great realities, the forgiveness we have for where we've come short, and for the promise we have that we will not lose, and we fearlessly take and use these gifts to accomplish what Christ has called us to do, to use these keys to usher in the kingdom of heaven. Amen.